Section 14 of A Year Amongst the Persians by Edward Granville Brown. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Year Amongst the Persians by Edward Granville Brown. Chapter 6 mysticism metaphysic and magic part two i trust that i have succeeded in making it sufficiently clear that the study of persian philosophy is not a thing to be lightly undertaken and that proficiency in it can only be the result of diligent application combined with good natural capacity it is not a thing to play with in a dilettante manner, but is properly regarded by its votaries as the highest intellectual training and the crown and summit of all knowledge. It was not long ere I discovered this fact, and, as it was clearly impossible for me to go through a tenth part of the proper curriculum, while at the same time I was deeply desirous of becoming, in some measure at least, acquainted with the most recent developments of Persian thought, I was fain to request my teacher, Mirza Asadullah, to take compassion on my infirmities, and to instruct me, as far as possible, and in as simple a manner as possible, concerning the essential practical conclusions of the doctrines of which he was the exponent. This he kindly exerted himself to do, and though any attempt at a systematic enunciation of Haji Mullah Hadi's philosophy, even were I capable of undertaking it, would be out of place here, I think that it may not be uninteresting if I notice briefly some of its more remarkable features, not as derived from his writings, but as orally expounded to me with explanations and illustrations by his pupil and disciple. As in the Sufi doctrine, being is conceived of as one. Alvoyudo hakikatun vahidatun basitatun valahu maratibu mutafadila. Being is a single, simple reality, and it has degrees differing in excellence. Poetically, this idea is expressed in the following quatrain. Majmu'ai kaun rabi kanuni sabak. Kardim tasafu farakan ba'davarak Hakaki nakhwanti munaditim daru Juzdati hak kusifati datiyai hak Like a lesson book, the compendium of the universe we turned over, leaf after leaf. In truth we read and saw therein naught save the essence of God and the essential attributes of God. The whole universe, then, is to be regarded as the unfolding manifestation or projection of God. It is the mirror wherein he sees himself, the arena wherein his various attributes display their nature. It is subsequent to him, not in sequence of time, for time is merely the medium which encloses the phenomenal world, and which is indeed dependent on this for its very existence, but in sequence of causation just as the light given off by a luminous body is subsequent to the luminosity of that body in causation, inasmuch as the latter is the source and origin of the former, and that whereon it depends and whereby it subsists, but not subsequent to it in time, 
because it is impossible to conceive of any time in the existence of an essentially luminous body antecedent to the emission of light therefrom. This amounts to saying that the universe is co-eternal with God, but not co-equal, because it is merely an emanation dependent on him, while he has no need of it. Just as the light proceeding from a luminous body becomes weaker and more diffuse as it recedes from its source, so the emanations of being become less real, or in other words more gross and material, as they become farther removed from their focus and origin. This gradual descent or recession from the primal being, which is called Kausin Nuzul, Arc of Descent, has in reality infinite grades, but a certain definite number, seven, is usually recognized. Man finds himself in the lowest of these grades, the material world, but of that world he is the highest development, for he contains in himself the potentiality of reascent, by steps corresponding to those in the arc of descent, to God, his origin, and his home. To discover how this return may be effected, how the various stages of the Kaus Isu'ud, arc of ascent, may be traversed, is the object of philosophy. The soul of man is corporeal in origin, but spiritual in continuance. An-nafso fil jismaniya, wa fil baqa ruhaniya. Born of matter, it is yet capable of a spiritual development which will lead it back to God, and enable it, during the span of a mortal life, to accomplish the ascent from matter to spirit, from the periphery to the centre. In the arc of ascent also are numerous grades, but here again, as in the arc of descent, seven are usually recognised. It may be well at this point to set down in tabular form these grades, as they exist both in the macrocosm, or arc of descent, and in the microcosm, or arc of ascent, which is man. 1. Arc of ascent, seven principles in man. Lata'ifis sabba. 1. The most subtle principle, akhfa. 2. The subtle principle, khafa. 3. The secret Sir. 4. The heart. Kalb. 5. The spirit. Ruh. 6. The soul. Nafs. 7. The nature. Tab. 2. Arc of descent. Series of emanations. 1. Exploration of the world of divinity. Sayada alam ilahut. 2. The world of divinity. Alam ilahut. 3. The world of the intelligences, Alami Jabarut. 4. The world of the angels, Alami Malakut. 5. The world of ideas, Alami Matna. 6. The world of form, Alami Surat. 7. The material world, Alami Tabi'at. I do not think that these first two should stand thus, for at most they only mark two different phases in the experience of the soul an attaining into the world of divinity, and a journeying therein. My impression is that they should be replaced thus. 1. The world of divinity, i.e. the divine essence, Alami Lahut. 2. The world of the attributes, Alami Rahut. This corresponds to the views given in the commentaries on the Fusus of Shaykh Muhyiddin ibn al-Arabi, and other similar works, where the five planes, Hazrati Khams, 
which coincide with the first five grades given here, i.e. those which belong to the spiritual world, are discussed. I have not, however, considered myself justified in making any alteration in Mirza Asadullah's scheme. A few words of explanation are necessary concerning the above scheme. Each stage in either column corresponds with that which is placed opposite to it. Thus, for instance, the mere matter which in the earliest stage of man's development constitutes his totality corresponds to the material world to which it belongs. In the material world, the arc of descent has reached its lowest point. In man, the highest product of the material world, the ascent is begun. When the human embryo begins to take form, it rises to the world of soul, thus summing up in itself two grades of the arcs. It may never ascend higher than this point, for, of course, when the upward evolution of man is spoken of, it is not implied that this is effected by all, or even by the majority of men. These seven principles do not represent necessarily coexisting components or elements, but successive grades of development, at any one of which, after the first, the process of growth may be arrested. The race exists for its highest development, humanity for the production of the perfect man, Insan i Kamil, who, summing up as he does all the grades of ascent from matter, the lowest point of the series of emanations, to God, is described as the microcosm, the compendium of all the planes of existence, Hazrat-i-Jamit, or sometimes as the sixth plane, Hazrat-i-Sadisa, because he includes and summarizes all the five spiritual planes. It has been said that some men never rise beyond the second grade, the world of soul or form, these are such as occupy themselves entirely during their lives with sensual pursuits, eating, drinking, and the like. Previously to Mullah Sadra, it was generally held by philosophers that these perished entirely after death, inasmuch as they had not developed any real spiritual principle. Mullah Sadra, however, took great pains to prove that even in these cases where the rational soul, nafsinatika, had not been developed during life, there did exist a spiritual part which survived death and resisted disintegration. This spiritual part he called imaginations, khialat. Yet even in this low state of development, where no effort has been made to reach the plane of the reason, a man may lead an innocent and virtuous life. What will then be the condition after death of that portion of him which survives the body? It cannot re-enter the material world, for that would amount to metempsychosis, which, so far as I have been able to ascertain, is uncompromisingly denied by all Persian philosophers. Neither can it ascend higher in the spiritual scale, for the period during which progress was possible is past. Moreover, it derives no pleasure from spiritual or intellectual experiences, and would not be happy in one of the higher worlds, even could it attain thereto. It desires material surroundings, and yet cannot return to the material world. It therefore does what seems to it the next best thing. It creates for itself subjective pseudo-material surroundings, and in this dream-dwelling it makes its eternal home. If it has acted rightly in the world according to its lights, it is happy. 
if wrongly, then miserable. The happiness or misery of its hereafter depends on its merit, but in either case it is purely subjective and absolutely stationary. There is for it neither advance nor return. It can neither ascend higher nor re-enter the material world, either by transmigration or resurrection, both of which the philosophers deny. What has been said above applies, with slight modifications, to all the other grades, at any rate the lower ones. If a man has, during his life in the world, attained to the grade of the spirit, the third grade in order of ascent, and acquired rational or intellectual faculties, he may still have used these well or ill. In either case he enters after death into the world of ideas, where he is happy or miserable according to his deserts. But, so far as I could learn, any one who has during his life developed any of the four highest principles passes after death into a condition of happiness and blessedness, since mere intellect without virtue will not enable him to pass beyond the third grade, or world of the spirit. According to the degree of development which he has reached, he enters the world of the angels, the world of the intelligences, or the world of divinity itself. From what has been said, it will be clear that a bodily resurrection and a material hereafter are both categorically denied by the philosophers. Nevertheless, states of subjective happiness or misery, practically constituting a heaven or hell, exist. These, as has been explained, are of different grades in both cases. Thus, there is a paradise of actions, Jalatul Af'al, where the soul is surrounded by an ideal world of beautiful forms, a paradise of attributes, Janatus Sifat, and a paradise of the essence, Janatus Zat, which is the highest of all, for there the soul enjoys the contemplation of the divine perfections, which hold it in an eternal rapture, and cause it to forget and cease to desire all those objects which constitute the pleasure of the denizens of the lower paradises. It is indeed unconscious of aught but God, and is annihilated or absorbed in him. The lower subjective worlds, where the less fully developed soul suffers or rejoices, are often spoken of collectively as the alam imithal, world of similitudes, or the alam ibazakh world of the barrier or border world the first term is applied to it because each of its denizens takes a form corresponding to his attributes in this sense omar khayyam has said ruziki jazai har sifat khwahad bud qadri to be qadri ma'rifat khwahad bud dar husn sifat hush ki dar on that day when all qualities shall receive thy recompense, thy worth shall be in proportion to thy wisdom. Strive after good qualities, for in the day of recompense thy resurrection shall be in the form of the attribute. Thus a greedy, gluttonous man takes the form of a pig, and it is in this sense only that metempsychosis, is held by the Persian philosophers. On this point my teacher was perfectly clear and definite. It is not uncommon for Sufis to describe a man by the form with which they profess to identify him in the world of similitudes. 
Thus I have heard a Sufi say to his antagonist, I see you in the world of similitudes as an old toothless fox, desirous of preying upon others, but unable to do so. I once said to Mirza Asadullah that if I rightly understood his views, hell was nothing else than an eternal nightmare, whereat he smiled and said that I had rightly apprehended his meaning. Although a soul cannot rise higher than that world to which it has assimilated itself during life, it may be delayed by lower affinities in the world of the barrier on its way thither. All bad habits, even when insufficient to present a permanent obstacle to spiritual progress, tend to cause such delay and to retard the upward ascent of the soul. From this it will be seen that the denizens of the world of the barrier are of three classes, two of these being permanent, and abiding for ever in the state of subjective happiness or misery which they have merited, and the third consisting of souls temporarily delayed there to undergo a species of probation before passing to the worlds above. On one occasion I put the following question to Mirza Asadullah. Two persons, A and B, have been friends during their lifetime, the former has so lived as to merit happiness hereafter, the latter misery. Both die and enter the world of the barrier, there receiving forms appropriate to their attributes. The one, moreover, is happy, the other wretched. Will not A have cognizance of B's miserable condition, and will not this knowledge tend to mar his felicity? To this question my teacher replied as follows. A's world is altogether apart from B's, and the two are entirely out of contact. In A's world are present all things that he desires to have in such form as he pleases, for his world is the creation of his imaginative faculty, freed from the restraints of matter and the outward senses, and endowed with full power to see what it conceives. Therefore, if A desires the presence of B as he knew him formerly, B will be present with him in that form under which he was so known, and not in the repulsive form which he has now assumed. There is no more difficulty in this than in a person dreaming in ordinary sleep that he sees one of his friends in a state of happiness, when at that very time his friend is in great pain or trouble. Such in outline are the more remarkable features of this philosophy as expounded to me by Mirza Asadullah. That it differs considerably from the ideas formed by most European scholars of the philosophy current in Persia, as represented in the books, I am well aware. I can only suppose that Gobineau is right as to the extent to which the system of Ketman, concealment of opinions, prevails in Persia, a view which my own experience strongly tends to confirm. He says, for example, in speaking of Mullah Sadra, Religion et philosophie dans l'Asie centrale, page 88, in whose footsteps Haji Mulahadi for the most part followed, le soin qu'il prenait de déguiser ses discours, il était nécessaire qu'il le prît surtout de déguiser ses livres. C'est ce qu'il a fait, et à les lire, on se ferait l'idée la plus imparfaite de son enseignement. Je dis à les lire sans un maître qui possède la tradition, Autrement, on y pénètre sans peine. 
such a system of concealment may seem strange to those accustomed to the liberty of thought enjoined in europe but it is rendered necessary in the east by the power and intolerance of the clergy many a philosopher like sheikh shihabuddin suhravardi many a sufi like mansuri hallaj has paid with his life for too free and open an expression of his opinions for the rest many of the ideas here enunciated bear an extraordinary similarity to those set forth by mr sinnett in his work entitled esoteric buddhism great exception has been taken to this work and especially it has been asserted that the ideas unfolded in it are totally foreign to buddhism of any sort of this i am not in a position to judge very possibly it is true though even then the ideas in question may still be of indian origin but whatever the explanation be no one i feel sure can compare the chapters in mr sinnett's book entitled respectively the constitution of man devachan and kamaloka with what i have written of haji mullah hadi's views on the nature of man and his hereafter without being much struck by the resemblance certain other points merit a brief notice the physical sciences as known to persian philosophy are those of the ancients their chemistry regards earth air fire and water as the four elements their astronomy is simply the ptolemaic system furthermore they regard the universe as finite and adduce many proofs some rather ingenious others weak enough against the contrary hypothesis of these i will give one only as a specimen let us suppose they say that the universe is infinite then from the centre of the earth draw two straight lines diverging from one another at an angle of sixty degrees to the circumference and produce them thence to infinity join their terminal points by another straight line thus forming the base of the triangle now since the two sides of the triangle are equal for both were drawn from one point to infinity therefore the angles at the base are equal and since the angle at the apex is sixty degrees therefore each of the remaining angles is sixty degrees and the triangle is equilateral therefore since the sides are infinite in length the base is also infinite in length but the base is a straight line joining two points videte the terminal points of the sides that is to say it is limited in both directions therefore it is not infinite in length neither are the sides infinite in length and a straight line cannot be drawn to infinity therefore the universe is finite quod erat demonstrandum this theorem scarcely needs comment it along with the endless discussions of a similar nature on the indivisible atom jauhari fard and the like is an inheritance from the scholastic theology ilmi kalam the physics of which have been retained by all persian metaphysicians up to the present day a few words may be said about the psychology of the system in question five psychic faculties corresponding to the five senses are supposed to exist these with their cerebral seats are as follows forebrain one the compound perception which has the double function of receiving and apprehending impressions from without 
It is compared to a two-faced mirror, because on the one hand it reflects the outward world as presented to it by the senses, and on the other, during sleep, it gives form to the ideas arising in the mutasarifa, which will be mentioned directly. 2. The imagination, khiyal, which is the storehouse of forms. 3. The controlling or coordinating faculty, mutasarifa, which combines and elaborates the emotions or ideas stored in the vahime and the images stored in the imagination. It is therefore called the keeper of the two treasuries. Midbrain. 4. The emotional faculty, vahime, which is the seat of love, hate, fear, and the like. Hindbrain. 5. The memory, hafiza, which is the storehouse of ideas. All these faculties are partial percipients, mudricati jus iye, and are the servants of the reason, akli insani, or nafsit natika, which is the general percipient, mudriki kulli. Of these faculties, the imagination would appear to be regarded as the highest, since, as we have seen, in those cases in which the reason or rational soul, nafsinatika, is not developed, it constitutes that portion of the individual which survives death and resists disintegration. Indeed, these five faculties are better regarded as different stages in the development of the reason. Nothing below the plane of the imagination, however, survives death, e.g. in the lowest animals whose culminating faculty is a sense of touch, like worms, death brings about complete disintegration. Finally, a few words may be added concerning the view taken of the occult sciences. I was naturally desirous to learn to what extent they were recognised as true, and accordingly questioned Mirza Asadullah on the matter. His reply, which fairly represents the opinions of most thoughtful Persians of the old school, was briefly to this effect. As regards geomancy, ilmirami, and astrology, ilminujum, he had no doubt of their truth, of which he had had positive proof. At the same time, of the number of those who professed to understand them, the majority were impostors and charlatans. Their acquisition was very laborious and required many years' patient study, and those who had acquired them and knew their value were, as a rule, very slow to exhibit or make a parade of their knowledge. As regards the interpretation of dreams, he said that these were of three kinds, of which only the last admits of interpretation. These three classes are as follows. 1. Dreams due to disordered health due to the predominance of 1. Blood, red things such as fire, etc. are seen. 2. Bile, yellow things such as the sun, gold, etc. are seen. 3. Phlegm, white things such as water, snow, etc. are seen. 4. Melancholy, black things such as ink, etc. are seen. 2. Dreams arising from the impressions produced during waking hours. 3. Dreams not arising from the external or internal causes above enumerated. These are reflections obtained during sleep from the world of similitudes, alam imithal. 
In some rare cases they indicate events as they actually will occur. Generally, however, they show them forth in a symbolical manner and require interpretation, just as every man has his appropriate form in the world of similitudes, so also has everything else. Knowledge, for instance, is symbolized by milk, an enemy by a wolf, etc. I discussed the occult sciences with several of my friends to discover as far as possible the prevailing opinion about them. One of them made use of the following argument to prove their existence. God, he said, has no buch, stinginess, avarice. It is impossible for him to withhold from anyone a thing for which he strives with sufficient earnestness. Just as, if a man devotes all his energies to the pursuit of spiritual knowledge, he attains to it, so, if he chooses to make occult sciences and magical powers the object of his aspirations, they will assuredly not be withheld from him. Another of my intimate friends gave me the following account of an attempt at conjuration, Ihazari Jin, at which he had himself assisted. My uncle Mirza, he said, whose house you may perhaps see when you visit Shiraz, was a great believer in the occult sciences, in the pursuit of which, indeed, he dissipated a considerable fortune, being always surrounded by a host of magicians, geomancers, astrologers, and the like. On one occasion something of value had disappeared, and it was believed to have been stolen. It was therefore determined to make an attempt to discover the thief by resorting to a conjuration, which was undertaken by a certain Sayyid of Shiraz, skilled in these matters. Now you must know that the operator cannot himself see the forms of the jinnis whom he evokes. He needs for this purpose the assistance of a young child. I, being then quite a child, was selected as his assistant. The magician began by drawing a talismanic figure in ink on the palm of my hand, over which he subsequently rubbed a mixture of ink and oil, so that it was no longer visible. He then commenced his incantations, and before long I, gazing steadily, as I had been instructed to do, into the palm of my hand, saw, reflected in it, as it were, a tiny figure, which I recognised as myself. I informed the magician of this, and he commanded me to address it in a peremptory manner, and bid it summon the king of the jinnis, Malikul Jinn. I did so, and immediately a second figure appeared in the ink mirror. Then I was frightened, and began to cry, and hastily rubbed the ink off my hand. Thereupon another boy was brought, and the same process was repeated, till the king of the jinnis appeared. Tell him to summon his vizier, said the magician. The boy did so, and the vizier also appeared in the ink mirror. A number of other jinnis were similarly called up, one by one, and when they were all present, they were ordered to be seated. Then the magician took a number of slips of paper, wrote on each of them the name of one of those resident in the house, and placed them under his foot. He then drew out one without looking at it, and called out to the boy, Who is here? The boy immediately read off the name in question in the ink mirror. The same process was repeated till the name of one of the servants in the house was reached. Well, said the magician, why do you not tell me what you see in the mirror? I see nothing, answered the boy. 
Look again, said the magician, gaze more fixedly on the mirror. After a little while the boy said, I see no name, but only the words Bismillahirrahmani Rahim, in the name of God, the merciful, the clement. This, said the magician, which I hold in my hand, is the name of the thief. The man in question was summoned and interrogated, and finally confessed that he had stolen the missing article, which he was compelled to restore. In this connection, it may not be out of place to give the experiences of another experimenter in the occult sciences, who, although at the time sufficiently alarmed by the results he obtained, subsequently became convinced that they were merely due to an excited imagination. My informant in this case was a philosopher of Isfahan, entitled Amin Nushariat, who came to Tehran in the company of his friend and patron, Banan ul-Mulk, one of the chief ministers of the Zillus Sultan. I saw him on several occasions and had long discussions with him on religion and philosophy. He spoke somewhat bitterly of the vanity of all systems. I have tried most of them, he said. I have been in turn Mussulman, Sufi, Shaykhi, and even Borbi. At one time of my life I devoted myself to the occult sciences and made an attempt to obtain control over the jinnis, Tashiri jinn, with what results I will tell you. You must know, in the first place, that the modus operandi is as follows. The seeker after this power chooses some solitary and dismal spot, such as the Hazar Dere at Isfahan, the place selected by me. There he must remain for forty days, which period of retirement we call Chille. He spends the greater part of his time in incantations in the Arabic language, which he recites within the area of the mandal, or geometrical figure, which he must describe in a certain way on the ground. Besides this, he must eat very little food, and diminish the amount daily. If he has faithfully observed all these details, on the twenty-first day a lion will appear, and will enter the magic circle. The operator must not allow himself to be terrified by this apparition, and above all must on no account quit the mandal, else he will lose the results of all his pains. If he resists the lion, other terrible forms will come to him on subsequent days, tigers, dragons, and the like, which he must similarly withstand. If he holds his ground till the fortieth day, he has obtained his object, and the jinnis, having been unable to get the mastery over him, will have to become his servants and obey all his behests. Well, I faithfully observed all the necessary conditions, and on the twenty-first day, sure enough, a lion appeared and entered the circle. I was horribly frightened, but all the same I stood my ground, although I came near to fainting with terror. Next day a tiger came, and still I succeeded in resisting the impulse which urged me to flee. But when, on the following day, a most hideous and frightful dragon appeared, I could no longer control my terror, and rushed from the circle, renouncing all further attempts at obtaining the mastery over the jinnis. When some time had elapsed after this, and I had pursued my studies in philosophy further, I came to the conclusion that I had been the victim of hallucinations excited by expectation, solitude, hunger, and long vigils, 
and with a view to testing the truth of this hypothesis, I again repeated the same process which I had before practised, this time in a spirit of philosophical incredulity. My expectations were justified. I saw absolutely nothing, and there is another fact which proves to my mind that the phantoms I saw on the first occasion had no existence outside my own brain. I had never seen a real lion then, and my ideas about the appearance of that animal were entirely derived from the pictures which may be seen over the doors of baths in this country. Now the lion which I saw in the magic circle was exactly like the latter in form and colouring, and therefore, as I need hardly say, differed considerably in aspect from a real lion. In Tehran I saw another philosopher of the same reputation, Mirza Abdul Hassani Jilbe. The last of these names is the Tachallus or Nom de Guerre, under which he writes poetry, for he is a poet as well as a metaphysician. Unfortunately, I did not have the advantage of any prolonged conversation with him, and even such as I had chiefly considered in answering his questions on the different phases of European thought. He was greatly interested in what I told him about the theosophists and vegetarians, and was anxious to know whether the Plymouth Brethren were believers in the transmigration of souls. Although, as will have already appeared, I acquired a considerable amount of information about certain phases of Persian thought during my sojourn in Tehran, there was one which, notwithstanding my most strenuous efforts and diligent inquiries, had hitherto eluded all my attempts to approach it. This one was Borbeism, of the history of which I have already had occasion to speak more than once, and to which I shall have to refer repeatedly in the course of subsequent chapters. Although I exerted to the utmost all the skill, all the tact, and all the caution which I had at my command, I was completely foiled in my attempts to communicate with the proscribed sect. I heard something about them, it is true, and what I heard served only to increase my desire to know more. I was told tales of their unflinching courage under torture, of their unshakable faith, of their marvellous skill in argument. I once met one of them, said a man of great learning to me, as I was returning from Karbala, and he succeeded in drawing me into a discussion on religious matters. So completely was I worsted by him at every turn, so thorough was his knowledge of the Qur'an and traditions, and so ingenious was the use he made of this knowledge, that I was finally compelled to effect my escape from his irresistible logic by declaring myself to be la madhab, a free thinker, whereupon he left me, saying that with such he had nothing to do. But whether my friends could not give me the knowledge I sought for, or whether they did not choose to do so, I was unable during my stay in Tehran to become acquainted with any members of the sect in question. Some, indeed, of those with whom I was acquainted at that time were, as I subsequently discovered, actually Barbies, yet these, although at times they asked me about the course of my studies, commended my devotion to philosophy, and even tantalised me with vague promises of introductions to mysterious friends, who were, as they would imply, endowed with true wisdom, would say nothing definite, 
and appeared afraid to speak more openly after arousing my curiosity to the highest pitch and making me fancy that i was on the threshold of some discovery they would suddenly leave me with an expression of regret that opportunities for prolonged and confidential conversation were so rare i tried to obtain information from an american missionary with similar lack of success he admitted that he had foregathered with boar bees but added that he did not encourage them to come and discuss their ideas which he regarded as mischievous and fanciful i asked how he succeeded in recognizing them since i had sought eagerly for them and had failed to find them he replied that there was not much difficulty in identifying them by their conversation as they always spoke on religious topics whenever an opportunity presented itself and dwelt especially on the need of a fuller revelation caused by the progress of the human race beyond this i could learn nothing from him once indeed i thought that i had succeeded in meeting with one of the sect in the person of an old shirazi merchant who to my astonishment launched forth before several other persians who were present on the excellencies of the new religion he declared that of their sacred books those written in arabic were more eloquent than the quran and those composed in persian superior in style to the writings of sa'di he spoke of an arabic book of theirs of which a copy written in gold and worth at least five hundred tumans one hundred and fifty pounds existed in teheran this he added he might perhaps some day take me to see all the time he was talking he kept looking at me in a peculiar way as though to watch the effect produced by his words i met him once again when no one else was present and easily induced him to resume the topic he spoke of the numerous signs and wonders which had heralded the birth of mirza ali muhammad the bob of the wonderful quickness of apprehension manifested by him when still but a child and of the strange puzzling questions he used sometimes to put to his teachers thus on one occasion when he was receiving instruction in arabic grammar he suddenly demanded huwa kist who is he my informant further declared that the franco-german war and other events had been foretold by the bob's successor some time before they actually occurred on another occasion in my eagerness to acquire knowledge on this matter i committed a great indiscretion and i fear caused considerable pain to my teacher mirza asadullah i had been informed that he had some time previously been arrested as a bobi and though he was released almost immediately on the representations of the english embassy it was hinted to me that possibly this powerful protection rather than any clear proof of his orthodoxy was the cause of his liberation i therefore determined to sound him on the matter and unable to control my impatience and await a favourable opportunity i approached the subject as cautiously as i could the very next time that i saw him alluding to a previous discussion on the finality attributed by mohammedans to the revelation of their prophet i said that i had recently heard that there existed in persia a number of people who denied this and alleged that a subsequent revelation had been accorded to mankind even within the lifetime of many still living 
Mirza Asadullah listened to what I said with a gradually increasing expression of dismay, which warned me that I was treading on dangerous ground, and made me begin to regret that I had been so precipitate. When I had finished, he continued silent for a few minutes, and then spoke as follows. I have no knowledge of these people, although you have perhaps been informed of the circumstances which give me good cause to remember their name. As you have probably heard some account of these, I may as well tell you the true version. Two or three years ago I was arrested in the village of Kulahak, which, as you know, serves the English residents for a summer retreat, by an officer in command of a party of soldiers sent to see another person suspected of being a Bobi. They had been unable to find him, and were returning disappointed from their quest when they espied me. Seize him, said the officer, that he is devoted to philosophy every one knows, and a philosopher is not far removed from a Bobi. Accordingly, I was arrested, and the books I was carrying, as well as a sum of money which I had on me, were taken from me by the officer in command. I was brought before the Naibus Sultana, and accused of being a Bobi. Many learned and pious men, including several mullahs, hearing of my arrest and knowing the utter falsity of the charge, appeared spontaneously to give evidence in my favour, and I was eventually released. But the money and the books taken from me I never recovered, and then the shame of it, the shame of it! But though, as you see, I have suffered much by reason of these people of whom you spoke just now, I have never met with them or had any dealings with them, save on one occasion. I was once returning from Sabzawar through Mazandaran, and at each of the more important towns on my way I halted for a few days to visit those interested in philosophy. Many of them were very anxious to learn about the doctrines of my master, Haji Mullah Hadi, and I was, as a rule, well received and kindly entertained. One day, it was at Sari, I was surrounded by a number of students who had come to question me on the views of my master, when a man present produced a book from which he read some extracts. This book, he said, was called Hakikati Basita, and as this was a term used by Haji Mulahadi, I thought it bore some reference to the philosophy I was expounding. I accordingly stretched out my hand to take the book, but the man drew it back out of my reach. Though I was displeased at his behaviour, I endeavoured to conceal my annoyance, and allowed him to continue to read. Presently he came to the turn Maratibi Ahadiyat, degrees of the primal unity. Here I interrupted him. I do not know who the author of the work you hold in your hand may be, I said, but it is clear to me that he does not understand what he is talking about, to speak of the degrees of primal unity, which is pure and undifferentiated being, is sheer nonsense. Some discussion ensued, and eventually I was permitted to look at the book. Then I saw that it was very beautifully written and adorned with gold, and it flashed upon me that what I held in my hand was one of the sacred books of the Bobis, and that those amongst whom I stood belonged to this redoubtable sect. That is the only time I ever came across them, and that is all that I know about them. And that was all, or nearly all, that I knew about them for the first four months I spent in Persia. 
How I came across them at last will be set forth in another chapter. End of section 14